You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Hey Church, Uh, today's reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 16 uh, verses 1 to 24. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, For he is doing the work of the Lord, as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me. For I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanas were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, as to every fellow worker and labourer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanas and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence. For they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. G'day, City on a Hill. 
My name is Nick Coombs. I get the joy of being the lead pastor of City on a Hill in Melbourne's East. And today, the great joy of unpacking the scriptures with you. Hey, if you're watching this with anyone right now, even if that someone is your cat or your dog, why don't you turn to them and say, we made it because you have made it. Today, we're going to land the plane on our 20-week journey through the letter of 1 Corinthians. And so we are going to come and bring this letter to a close. Uh, Before we see what God has for us out of 1 Corinthians 16, would you join with me in prayer? Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you so much for your word, that it uh, is living and active, that it pierces us. And we pray that you would do that this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, that you would please uh, bless us and build us up in Jesus challenge us, convict us, comfort us, and console us. May Jesus be big in this chapter of the Bible for us today. And may our hearts be all the more bigger because of your work in us today. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, the men and women of City on a Hill in Melbourne's East know full well that I am a big fan of memes in a sermon. And there is no more wholesome meme content than the You Had One Job series of memes. They highlight what goes wrong when someone doesn't do their primary job. Here's a few. First picture, architect, builder of the staircase. You had one job, connect the stairs to the door. A crack resistant cement sign. You had one job. Just don't crack. Gate. You had one job. Keep all the unauthorized cars out of the car park. And the one we're most familiar with this year. 2020 planner. You had one job this year. Just help us plan our 2020. It didn't happen. Well, today we come to the final chapter in the letter of 1 Corinthians. And we have seen in recent weeks what is at the heart, what is of first importance, what is the the climactic point of the whole letter and of our life and our message. And that is the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus. And so our one job as Christians is to know this risen Jesus and to make this risen Jesus known. And as we open up 1 Corinthians 16, we might be tempted at first glance to notice the detail and immediately tune out or switch off as if this chapter is superfluous to our one job of living the Christian life and making Jesus known to our world today. If we were to tune out or switch off, then we would miss out. Because I want you to notice before we get to 1 Corinthians 16 where we've come from. As we descended the the mountaintops of that amazing reality of Jesus' resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul closed out that chapter by saying this, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And so essentially, Paul is saying, hey, Jesus has won the victory, so let's get into the fight. Jesus has closed the deal, now let's get to work. Jesus has finished the job, and so let's roll up our sleeves and go to work. I was reading during the week uh, the fascinating story of a former Japanese soldier, Hiru Anoda. Hiro fought for Japan in the Second World War. And as the war came to an end and the Japanese surrendered, Hiro was stationed in the hills of the Philippines. 
But because he was serving in such an isolated place, uh, when uh, he heard that the war had ended, he actually thought it was a hoax. He thought it was a strategy of the enemy to try to get him to surrender. And so instead, he hung around in the Philippines. In the Philippines. He, he spent 29 more years living in the hills of the Philippines, thinking that World War II was still going. Now, the gospel of the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection is this announcement that God has won. He has won the fight. Jesus has laid down his life to win the victory over Satan, sin, and death. And as Christians, our one job is to go and announce that good news to the world, that the war is over, the battle has been won. We can lay down our weapons because Jesus is victorious We can trust him. And so this context turns 1 Corinthians 16, which we're going to look at today, into a very insightful historical expose on what doing our one job as Christians looked like back then and what it looks like for us today. We're going to see what it looks like to to work and labor for the Lord. And so we're going to go through the text today. I'm going to stop at three different points and look to three different often neglected elements of our mission today. And so join me in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 16. And we're going to look here from Paul's example and see, number one, that we have a strategic mission. He writes this. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, Each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I'll send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. And so Paul starts talking about very practical matters. He starts talking about money that he is collecting for the church in Jerusalem, which evidently was particularly needy at this point in time. And so Paul has a campaign going across the churches that he knows to raise money to gift to the church in Jerusalem. Notice he's got a particular strategy about how to raise these funds. He says that on every Sunday, which is now the first day of the week and the day that Christians would gather, given that's the day that Jesus rose again, he's asking the Christians to bring a gift, bring some money according to the income that they had for that week and put it aside for their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem so that when Paul arrives, he can kind of tick off that it's happened and then send it along with some credible trusted leaders, or if needed, he himself will deliver it personally. What I want us to notice here is the detail that Paul is very particular and intentional. He sees the need, but he doesn't just shoot off thoughts and prayers. He doesn't simply empathize with the need and think about, that must be really hard. He doesn't just have all the feels. He does have them, but he very importantly makes a plan. He knows that the body of Christ can help. And so he sets out the strategy for how that need will be met and even sets up an accountability system to ensure that the money that was donated will be protected on its way to Jerusalem. Now, we also see the same kind of strategic thinking as he talks about his own travel plans. Let's continue in verse 5. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia. For I intend to pass through Macedonia and perhaps I'll stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. 
For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened to me. And there are many adversaries. And so Paul lays out a very particular and intentional itinerary. He knows something that we've all learned in 2020, and that is to be physically present is far better than remaining distant. But what's most important in his itinerary, what's keeping him where he is right now in Ephesus, is that a wide door for effective work has opened to me. Even though it's hard and there are many adversaries, what's going to be most effective for him is to stay in Ephesus. And so Paul's travel plans are shaped by what he sees as most strategic and the effective use of his time. You can imagine how many people would have been calling for Paul's time, how many needs he would have known about in the churches that he had visited. But Paul was single-minded on what would be most effective. And so these are innocuous verses, which on the surface look like needless administrative detail. They actually expose for us what is an important part of mission today. We learned something from Paul's example, that money, itineraries, travel plans, these earthy details about our lives, they matter. And too often, the church and we Christians can over-spiritualize the faith. And that's somewhat what we've seen the Corinthians do throughout the letter. They prioritize those glossy and fanatical spiritual gifts to the detriment of genuine love. They celebritize certain preachers and teachers and leaders instead of doing the difficult yet gritty work of correcting sin, applying grace and walking through the ordinary means of grace. And just like them, we Christians today can think that the 80 minutes we spend at church or at church online, the 15 minutes we spend in our quiet times in the mornings or before bed, We think God only cares about those moments that feel particularly spiritual, the preaching, the sacraments, the prayer, and everything else in our lives, he's ho-hum about. The work of God works itself out in the mundane details of our lives. God cares about how we actually live our lives every other moment too. After all, the, the life we actually live is the life that God is working in, the one that God has made you for and the one that he will call you to account for on that final day when you see him face to face. And so our love and commitment to Jesus doesn't just show up when we attend the prayer meetings, but also when we attend the AGM and all the accountants said, amen. Not just in our quiet times, but also in those times when the kids are screaming and not letting you have a moment of quiet. Not just in how much we hope to be able to give one day when we're finally financially independent, but what we do with the money that we actually have right now. Not just in our public positions, but also in our private policies. The mission doesn't only involve those missionaries who are able to uproot their lives and their families and move overseas, but it involves every Christian and every family who earns an income, who has a calendar, who spends time and has relationships. And so it involves you. The mission of God involves you right now and the life that you live. And so because these things matter, we need to be like Paul, strategic in using the details of our lives for gospel purposes. And so how much thought do you give 
to thinking about using your money for gospel purposes. When you look at your household budget, do you think to yourself, what would be the most strategic use of this money for the gospel? When you pull out your weekly plan or open up your iCal or Google Cal for the week ahead, do you consider what would be the most effective use of my time for the sake of knowing and making, knowing Jesus and making Jesus known this week. See, whenever we have limited resources, we need to think strategically. Now, whenever we've had limited resources, that has certainly been the case this year. And now forgive me for a little local church boast, but just wanted to give a shout out to Lisa Tazia and the sewing team of City on a Hill in Melbourne's East. Because in response to the stage four restrictions in Melbourne, Lisa thought to herself, a wide door for effective work has opened to me. And so she thought strategically about the best way to use this moment for the kingdom and so hurriedly recruited a sewing team. They were able to sew their face masks together. Uh, and we have now had over 500 face masks that we've been able to gift and donate to multiple organizations around the east of Melbourne, increasing the relationships we have for the months and years to come that we might be able to create more relationships to lift up Jesus. And so this is a moment of all moments for you to think strategically. Where is a wide door for effective work that has been opened to you this year? How can you be a witness during a pandemic? Who can you invite perhaps to Alpha Online, which is one wide effective door at this time? These are small little details of our lives. And yet they're the very details that God works in. And so the church throughout the ages, here in Corinth down to today, has been built off of people wired just like Paul here, thinking strategically about getting the gospel out there. You may have not heard of a Countess of Huntingdon, Selina Hastings. She was a British aristocrat in the 18th century who, because of her commitment to Jesus, used her influence and her wealth to fund 118 local churches Then she started a Bible college to raise up pastors to fill those churches and then funded the ministry of George Whitfield, who very famously preached to 10 million people throughout his ministry. At the end of her life, Selena said, my work is done. I have nothing left to do but to go to my father. Or perhaps you've heard of William Wilberforce, the British politician who very strategically chose politics over the pulpit so that he could, after many grueling years, lead the abolition of the slave trade and the reform of the UK. Now, these are people who aren't necessarily preaching sermons or leading revivals. They're men and women who simply looked at what God had given them and asked themselves, what would be the most effective use of what I have right now? And many of you are wired in the same way. Our church needs your entrepreneurial mind to think up new missional initiatives. It needs your detailed mind and gift set to hone credible policies. The church needs your big vision so that we can inspire and be motivated and empowered to give and sacrifice. The church today needs people like you to build a city, to build a city on a hill, without which we won't be able to shine as we should if you aren't involved. And so Jesus has risen. And that reality changes everything. But don't let the fact that Jesus isn't physically in front of you right now change or distract you 
from the truth that God's mission is in front of you right now. And so another reason that Paul is so strategic is because of what he turns to next. We have a strategic mission. And then he goes on to detail some of Timothy and Apollos' plans. But he turns now to the church in Corinth and challenges them by telling them that we also have a dangerous mission. A dangerous mission. Look with me to verse 13. He says, Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now, I know COVID-19 this year and the lockdown and the isolation has brought out many new fads amongst our households. Perhaps you've been baking your own bread. Perhaps you've launched your own podcast. And of course, would any of those things really happen if you weren't able to announce it on Instagram? Uh, For me and my family, uh, one new fad that we've got into in recent weeks in stage four restrictions in Melbourne is a very addictive game on the Apple TV called Sneaky Sasquatch. Me and my four-year-old have spent or perhaps wasted many, many hours bonding over this game. And I'll confess that even when he goes to sleep, I sneaky Sasquatch myself out onto the couch to play by myself. Now, the more I think about this game, the more it strikes me that it's a bit like a G-rated Grand Theft Auto for children. So the point of the game is that you are a Sasquatch, you are Bigfoot, and you live just outside a campground, surrounded by families and holiday makers, and very importantly, their scraps of food, tins of tuna, bags of chips, dog food, which as a Sasquatch who's very hungry, you need to steal from their eskies and from their barbecues and their garbage cans to be able to feed yourself and live. And so the one job that this Sasquatch has in life is to extend his influence and to hopefully save the campground from the evil corporate fat cats who want to turn it into a property development. This is a very strategic game. You've got choices to make. You can get a job or you could play golf. You could take a snow trip or you could become an Uber driver. You can find a bigger house or you can put and save the money in the bank. Now, as you're going about this mission as a sneaky Sasquatch, there are many dangers. The most pressing danger of all are the park rangers who are on the lookout for Bigfoot to arrest him and bring him down. And so if you get seen, if you get smelt, if you get heard, you are gone. And so to protect against these dangers, well, the trick in the game is to disguise yourself, to get a disguise so that you can walk around the campground free. Now, Paul is here telling the church in Corinth that there are many dangers to being a Christian. There are dangers within of disunity and division, of cliques and comparisons, of shrugging our shoulders at sin instead of dealing with it, of pride in our knowledge of secondary issues, of exercising Christian freedom without a thought to others who might disagree, with wanting to look super spiritual to the detriment of gospel clarity. There's other dangers from outside the church of false teaching coming in to the church of the world's moral compass, compromising the church itself and their own witness. And for all these, Paul wants to warn the Corinthians, be watchful. Stay on the lookout. Be watchful out there and be watchful in here. But Paul's challenges to them highlight a major difference in going about our mission when compared to going about the mission of a secret agent like the sneaky Sasquatch or a James Bond or Mission Impossible's Ethan Hunt. When we watch those movies, they go about their mission by disguising themselves as someone else. And yet Paul here is telling the Christians, 
to not pretend to be someone else. Rather, we confront the dangers of the Christian life by being more of who we truly are. Now, there's a couple of ways that Paul goes about instructing the Corinthians to be who they really are. First, he says, stand firm in the faith. In other words, don't shift on what you know to be true. Don't compromise the faith by changing it, by disguising it, by bending it, by manipulating it to to fit in. Stand firm in the faith. That definite article is very important. The faith, once for all, given to the saints. The faith in which you stand, which Paul articulated in 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus' death, that it was real and substitutionary death in our place for our sin. Jesus' resurrection, that it was a real physical resurrection, highlighting the power and the glory of God. And yet so often the church's strategy, our strategy can be to combat the dangers of irrelevance or being ostracized by the world out there. And so we decide to blend in and disguise ourselves so that we might not look very different at all from the world. In response to the liberalism of the church around him uh, early in the 20th century, theologian Gresham Machen once said, indifference about doctrine makes no heroes of the faith. And we stand firm in who Jesus is and what he's done because he is the reason that we're standing at all. And when Christians don't stand firm in the faith, perhaps by downplaying who Jesus is or or what he's done, his, his death or his resurrection, or perhaps disbelieving it at all, inevitably we see that they stop standing and rather those churches keel over and perish. But when we stand firm in the faith, ironically, The message of the gospel, the message that God loves the world so much that he took on flesh and sent his only son to us, who laid down his life, humbling himself even unto death, dying in the place of his enemies so that we, his enemies, could be forgiven and adopted into his family. That message of such radical kindness and grace and humility and love, paradoxically, gives us a backbone. When we stand firm in the faith, we grow in gospel confidence and gospel courage. And so Paul goes on to say, act like men, be strong. Now, Paul's also writing to uh, the church in Corinth, which is full of both men and women. And so he's not necessarily saying act like men as opposed to acting like women, but rather act like men as opposed to acting like children. Standing firm in the faith is going to be hard. Temptations are going to come at us from the world, our flesh, the devil. And so it will take strength to stand. It will take maturity to stand. It will need us taking responsibility to stand. And so we need to have a faith that certainly, yes, is childlike, but never childish. And then Paul finishes his charge with let all that you do be done in love. You see, the bottom line of the gospel is love. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The bottom line of the gospel is love. And therefore, the bottom line of the Christian faith of your life and mine is love. Standing firm in the faith will be hard. We're going to need to be strong. We're going to need to have courage. And yet the opposite disguise that we can sometimes uh, use to, to blend in or protect ourselves from others or from the dangers to our faith 
is to harden ourselves. We can isolate from community for the sake of safety. We can hole up inside our, our Christian holy huddles, lest we be uh, kind of tainted by the world out there and exposed to its dangers. But Paul says not to disguise ourselves with thicker skin, but instead we protect ourselves from the dangers by softening our hearts. A softened heart loves God's word too much to tamper with it. A softened heart loves God's people too much to divide them. A softened heart loves Jesus too much to want to stray from him. Romans 5 tells us that God has poured out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so Paul simply wants us to be who we are. Let all that we do come from the love that we have already received in Jesus. And this charge to be watchful, it's important for us to take heed of in our day because we too need to be watchful. Particularly for us in the West, our, our prosperity, our, our relative safety can cause us rather than being watchful, rather to fall asleep. I was reading this week about an awful and, and rare health condition known as sleeping beauty syndrome. The experience is far more terrible than it sounds. Sleeping beauty syndrome can occur in some otherwise completely healthy adolescents, whereby it causes those who have it to, to fall asleep for weeks on end. And so these young people have their whole lives stunted and disrupted, essentially living in an isolated, lonely lockdown because they just can't help but be asleep. And as I was reading, I was struck by how far more common would be a spiritual sleeping beauty syndrome. I have known several people in my life who once followed Jesus, but no longer do. And in each and every case, those people weren't worshiping Jesus in earnest wholeheartedly on a Sunday. And then the next Monday, they woke up and decided they didn't want a bar of him. No, but it was slowly over time. A compromise here, ambivalence there. And sure enough, people start to fall asleep to Jesus to the point that the candle of their faith melts all the way down and the light goes out. And so Paul wants us to be watchful, watchful of our own hearts. We must be strong and we must let all that we do be done in love, lest we fall asleep to the dangers that exist to our faith and our unity. Not to be so soft that we don't stand firm, yet not to be so hardened or firm that we lose our love. Now, Paul's challenge here is not just to one particular individual, but to the church together. And so as we wrap up with, his, uh, with the third and final point uh, of the whole letter, we see Paul turning the collective church's eyes now beyond itself. And so we see we've got a strategic mission, a dangerous mission, and number three, a unified mission. Read with me verse 19. The churches of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Prissa, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Paul turns the eyes of the Corinthians beyond themselves to this bigger family that they're a part of as he's closing the book. The churches of Asia, which is modern day Turkey, they send their love. The church in the house of Aquila and Prissa, they send their love. In fact, every, all Christians everywhere send their love to you, Corinthians. Now, evidently, there's a lot of love across the known world at the time amongst the Christians. They're all in this together. 
And such should be their own affection for each other in Corinth that Paul encourages them, something which I don't encourage you to do right now, and that is greet each other with a holy kiss. And so Paul is eager for the church in Corinth to feel what he knows to be true about them, that they're a family, that they are of themselves, but also together with the wider body of Christ, a unified family with the same mission, on the same team, working together for the same Christ and in the same Christ. This is how Paul opened the letter. You might remember if you cast your mind all the way back to week one in our letter. In verse two of chapter one, Paul said to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And given all that Paul would address in his letter, it seems that he intentionally bookends it at the beginning and the end by telling the Corinthians that they are in unity with all believers everywhere. Because he knows that this church in particular, the church in Corinth, is not at all going to feel like a family. They've been following different teachers. They've been dividing into the strong and the weak. They've been creating factions based on spiritual gifts. They've used their freedoms to stand out from the rest of the church. But to them, he says in verse 21, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Those three powerful words. They came up in that first few verses of the book and they close the book here. In Christ Jesus. Where is such unity found? Even when we don't feel like it, it's found in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. Those are the three words, the only thing that matters when it comes to our unity. And so whatever the Corinthians feel, whatever the Corinthians have done or left undone, being in Christ Jesus changes everything. Now, perhaps like them, given the year that we've had and not been able to gather together physically and the ways the church has looked so different this year, perhaps you right now aren't feeling like you're part of a wider family, perhaps even pre-COVID or maybe even post-COVID. You struggle even when we do gather to feel part of the church family. Let it be good news to you to know that our lack of feeling or our physical distance doesn't change the reality of the truth. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are in his family. And so Paul ends 1 Corinthians reminding us and the Corinthians of this big idea of the whole book, what we titled one. We are one because we are one with and in Christ. You know, the night of Jesus' betrayal, he prayed that this would be true of us. He prayed for the church in Corinth. He prayed for you today. He prayed for me. He prayed for us. As he was praying for us, John 17 tells us, Jesus prayed that we may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Now, don't miss this. Jesus in that prayer is, is saying that we are just as united with Jesus as he is 
with the Father. Now, my daughter later this year is going to turn two years old. Uh, her name's Aria. And when she turns two, you know what isn't going to happen as part of her birthday celebrations at my house? What isn't going to happen is Jules, my wife and I, we're not going to call a family meeting and bring in Axel, her older brother, uh, and bring out a whiteboard and, and ask ourselves the question, should we keep her? And we're not going to have a meeting that says, you know, let, let's weigh up the pros and cons of whether we should keep Aria. Pro, she is really cute. Uh, con, she still wakes us up at night. Uh, a pro, she is a human being made in, the, made in God's image. Uh, after all, uh, con, she, she kind of poos a lot. Uh, pro, uh, she, she might actually look after us when we're old. She seems responsible. Uh, con, she can't even dress herself yet. What should we do? We are not going to weigh that up. We are not going to be thinking about whether to keep our daughter or not. Why? Because she's ours. She's my daughter. She is our daughter. And Jesus is saying that we are united to him as he is united to the father, just like I am united with my daughter. Nothing is going to change that identity in Jesus. Therefore, Jesus is saying that we are united to each other as brothers and sisters, just as my daughter is to my son. And so there are no need for divisions in the church with some following one teacher and others following another, we're in Christ. We're one. There's no place for boasting in our sin or, or tolerating that which dishonors Jesus. We're in Christ, bought with a price. We're one. That we could be in Christ is the most revolutionary idea in the world. No matter who we are, where we've come from, what we've done or what we haven't done. In Jesus, God offers to replace our life with His. Our guilt for His righteousness. Our sin for His innocence. Our shame for His freedom. Our pride for His humility. And our division for His family. In Christ, we are one. Do you know that reality today? Have you put your trust in Jesus today? Would you follow him and join this eclectic, sometimes awkward, sometimes it looks divided, uh, diverse, unified, essentially unified family as we seek to make this Jesus known today? And so Paul closes his letter by reminding us that because Jesus is victorious, we should make all of our life all about him. That we should be watchful to keep our lives and our eyes on him. And that we are one because Jesus has made us his own. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we praise you for Jesus. We praise you for his glorious death and resurrection. Empower us by your Holy Spirit to use the lives that you have given us to make much of him. Empower us to stand firm in our faith today. Empower us to move forward together as one body, one family today. May we live how we really are, united to your son as one family, one team with one mission. Send us out to love and obey you in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.